This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome author Nick Bunker to the program. How you doing, Nick? Hello there. Thanks for having me. Yes, Nick Bunker is author of An Empire on the Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America. He previously wrote the highly acclaimed Making Haste from Babylon, A History of the Mayflower Pilgrims. He joins us on the historians uh, from uh, Lincoln, I believe, in uh, England, uh, where he lives. And that's probably an obvious question. Why is an Englishman writing about basically the American Revolution? But I, I must say, having read into your book, that... I find your book, uh, in a way, kind of refreshing, because I read a fair amount of uh, stories about the American Revolution, but it's always about us. And your book is about us, and by that I mean the American side, but you really delve into the British side. Well, that's right. You know, there's really only a tiny handful of British historians who have taken an interest in the uh, in the American Revolutionary process from, from our side of the water. I'm not entirely sure why that is, but... Uh, in, in fact, there's a great deal of material, a great deal of documentary and archive material relating to the period, which is actually in London. In fact, most of the material relating to the Boston Tea Party is actually in London. And so there is an opportunity to, to re-examine that material and to, to come up with um, an account of a period that really gets inside the heads of the British government at the time. That was what I was really trying to do, trying to get inside the heads of the British decision makers to see why they made the various fatal mistakes that eventually led to the uh, the bloodshed at Lexington in April 1775. I've heard some, and it's probably too easy to do, who, who make comparisons to the present day, you know, depending on how things are going, saying, oh, for example, you know, America and its forays into Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, uh, do, do you make any c- such comparisons? Yeah, I, not explicitly in the book, but I mean, I think when, when I, le- I, le- I try to leave it up to the reader to make those comparisons of themselves, some of which are quite clear. The comparison I would make actually would be a rather different one. Um, the way I look at it is this, that in the 1770s, the British government and British decision makers were trying to come to terms with you know, very much a changing world, a, a world that was starting to spring some very unwelcome surprises on them. Um, not only in the colonies, but also in Europe, too, uh, where they were facing a rather complicated uh, diplomatic situation, thanks to the rise of Russia and Prussia and so on, uh, but also at home in England, where they were grappling with the, the kind of economic turmoil that was caused during the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. So they were trying to come to terms with the changing world. And I think the parallel I would draw with, is really with American presidents these days and, and the American Congress trying to come to terms with phenomena like the rise of China, for example. I mean, the rise of China as an economic Mm -hmm. and political power has kind of changed the agenda. And we're all really trying to wait and see as to how that will develop. And so the British government at the time were trying to come to terms with their changing situation, trying to come up to terms with, come up with policies that would make sense. And I think that's very much the same kind of situation that, that any U.S. president now has to do. He has to change, come to terms with this, this, this greatly changed world situation. Let me talk a little bit about you. Uh, you were educated at, at uh, King's College, Cambridge, Columbia University, and your first career was as a journalist. Uh, and uh, you worked for, among uh, others, the Financial Times, uh, the uh, British publication? Yes, I did. I mean, I actually started my career as, as, a, as a daily newspaper reporter on an evening newspaper in Liverpool in the north of England, which was a great place to start because it was, it was a city where there was all kinds of news going on. This was in the early 1980s when there, there was a very difficult economic situation. And then I did, I did, I went on to the Financial Times, uh, where again, I mean, that was a great place to work because working both first of all in Liverpool and then working in, right in the heart of London, I, I feel like... Um, was able to to meet 
a very large number of people from very different, many different walks of life and to cover a range of different kinds of stories. Why did you make the switch uh, to um, you know, something else from, from journalism? You became an investment banker? Yes, I did. I mean, that was uh, in the 90s. And really, that was because, um, well, there were <laughs> all kinds of reasons, some of which I wouldn't actually want to go into. But, but uh, I, really, the reason was because I was working on the financial side of the Financial Times, and I became more and more fascinated by investment, you see. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I used to read the works of Warren Buffett. This is sort of 25 years ago. I was an early um, admirer of the work of Warren Buffett. And that led me to want to make a career in investments. Ah. And in both of these careers, I imagine, or, or perhaps in your research for your history books, you've uh, come to the United States. You've done a lot of research in the United States, I believe, for this book. But you've also traveled in China, India, former uh, Soviet uh, bloc. Yeah, that, that was partly when I was working for the Financial Times, then later on when I worked in the City of London. I, the company for which I chiefly worked in the City of London was the uh, HSBC, or the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation. And, of course, that gave me an opportunity not only to travel quite often to the United States, where we used to have clients, but also uh, I did see quite a lot of, of, of the rest of the world. And uh, India I know particularly well. Mm. And uh, unlike some of the folks we interview on the uh, historians, you're not a college professor. I mean, you're not a history professor or, or part of that, but uh, you uh, approach this. I mean, it's, it's a book with footnotes and explanations and the whole nine yards. And uh, it, it seems that certainly with your first book, you made uh, quite a name for yourself, the book about the Mayflower Pilgrims. Well, I hope so. Um, I hope so, yes. I mean, as you say, I'm not a college professor. And my original intention when I was at Cambridge was to, to try to become a college professor. But this was the 1980s. Uh, there was an economic recession at the time. It was very hard indeed in those days to actually make a career in England in universities because there were so many financial constraints on the system. And so I had to choose an alternative career first as a journalist and then an investment banker. But my intention always was at some stage to try to come back to uh, the world of scholarship. Mm-hmm. Nick Bunker with us, author of An Empire on the Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America. Uh, you say that, that the British started the war, yet uh, one event leading up to the war is uh, important in your book. Uh, you're writing about the Boston Tea Party of 1773. Um, I mean, that was an act of aggression, wasn't it, on the part of uh, of the American patriots, or I don't know what name we'll, we'll use for them as we uh, go on, and that the, the British were ill-used and, and had to, you know, respond in defense of law and order. Well, indeed. In fact, they, of course, there had been an earlier event, which is also dealt with in the book, which is, is the Gaspé incident in, in the June of 1772, 18 months before the, the Tea Party. This was the, the incident in Rhode Island when a British naval warship, the, uh, the Gaspé, was, was destroyed by um, seamen and merchants from Providence, Rhode Island. And that, in a sense, is, is the first uh, really significant episode in the book. That was one where the Americans certainly had committed an act of aggression. Now, the British... Although they were very upset about it, they were very angry about it, they were inclined to see that as really a kind of a Rhode Island situation. I mean, Rhode Island always had a reputation for being one of the most difficult uh, and recalcitrant colonies. Um, So the British didn't overreact initially to the Gaspé incident. When the Boston Tea Party occurred, of course, what it did was, uh, when the news arrived in London in January 1774, that it, it immediately played into the hands of the most hawkish people in the British government, who for years had been arguing that Americans were hell-bent on independence. 
And so it really was a big game changer. From the moment the news arrived in London, it was very clear that Lord North, the Prime Minister, was going to have to act in a very determined and resolute fashion. Unfortunately, what he did was that uh, he took his decisions too hastily, and uh, the decisions were taken that, uh, that would sort of set, if you like, set the fuse burning towards the, the events in New England in early 1775. Now, in the Boston Tea Party, uh, the colonists threw tea from a British ship into the harbor, in, in effect, destroying the tea. Um, why is that so important? What, what, what is, what's with tea? Well, the British government had sponsored the scheme by the East India Company to ship very large quantities of tea to America, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, essentially, what the British were trying to do was, first of all, to, to help to bail out the East India Company, which was in severe financial difficulties, partly because of a banking crisis say, in London. The British government also wanted to put out of business the smugglers who dominated the tea trade along the eastern seaboard of, of the 13 colonies. And they wanted to establish the principle that Americans should pay tax. Uh, now, what had been happening was that it had become virtually impossible to collect customs duties in a conventional fashion along the coast because of so much resistance from, from the smugglers, such as the kind we saw in the case of the gas beds in Rhode Island. So the British felt that if they sent the tea uh, in the way they did, uh, and each pound of the tea carried the thrippenny tax, then if you like, it would compel Americans to, to pay the tax, and it would be a, a very kind of efficient way to collect the money. Now, what they hadn't reckoned with is anything like the scale of resistance would occur. When the news arrived in, in January 1774, therefore, in London, they really, it, it was completely unexpected. Um, and it instantly posed a great big problem uh, in the sense, first of all, as I say, there were hawks in the British government who seized upon the news and, as vindication for their position. But also the other problem was that from a legal point of view, there was no question that this was an act of treason. Uh, when the British government went to their legal advisers, the Attorney General and the Solicitor General uh, in London, and, and asked them, is this event a crime? There was no question from an English legal point of view it was an act of treason. And so they were left with no alternative but to take some vigorous action. The difficulty was the action they did take was uh, disproportionate and was almost bound to lead to some kind of confrontation, violent or otherwise. Mm -hmm. What was the action they took? Well, the, the action the British took was to pass a series of, of acts of parliament, which, which are called either the Intolerable Acts or the Coercive Acts, depending on which side of the water you happen to be on. The big mistake the British made here was, uh, first of all, they didn't design the legislation terribly well. Uh, the Boston Port Act, which was the, the, the crucial act, which was designed to close the Port of Boston as a punishment for the Tea Party, was drafted in a way that made it open-ended. In effect, what the British said was, this Port Act will close the port until such time as the king has determined that the people of Massachusetts have made adequate reparation for what has occurred. Now, that was a foolish way to draft the legislation because it meant, in effect, that there was kind of an open-ended uh, process whereby the Americans would never really know whether or not any solution they proposed, any compromise they proposed, compromise they proposed would be acceptable in London. Uh, so that was the first mistake, to draft the legislation badly. The other mistake the British made was to, to move on to do something which the Hawks in London had been advocating for a long time, that is to say to effectively abolish the constitution which Massachusetts had had for nearly 100 years mm. and to replace it with what was effectively going to be direct rule from London. Now, this was, this was a dangerous thing to do because, of course, it, that played into the hands of, of those people in Boston who had always argued that there was a kind of conspiracy on the part of, British, of the British government to subvert American liberties. So that was really a bridge too far. And then finally, the British came up with another dangerous piece of legislation, the Quebec Act, 
the Quebec Act passed in the middle of 1774, which effectively would have blocked the American colonies from any westward expansion over the Appalachians and into the Ohio Valley and then towards the Mississippi. And again, of course, that antagonized not simply the people in New England, but also the people of Virginia, Pennsylvania, and so on. In the 1770s, was America, or I mean the, the colonies in America, the closest thing to England, I mean, among their overseas possessions, you know what I mean? There were, many of the people were of English origin and had the same uh, uh, religion as they did in, uh, in England. Well, the West Indies really, in a sense, were the jewel in the crown for the British. It was really Jamaica, Barbados, Antigua, and so on, because the economic value of them to Great Britain was, was, was actually significantly greater. Um, in addition to that, South Carolina was particularly cherished by the British because, again, it was very prosperous and it was, it was producing huge amounts of rice, which were, which were coming back to Europe, and Virginia, too, because of the tobacco trade. Uh, the British were actually less concerned about New England. I mean, the value of New England to the British was actually a little bit doubtful. Trouble was, though, that they, that they didn't really uh, analyze the situation in London as closely as they might have done. It never occurred to them they might, for example, have been able to divide the different colonies amongst themselves uh, and to, if you like, set the colonies at each other's throats. That would have been probably the shrewdest thing the British would, could have done. But that was not an option that they explored until it was already too late. Hmm. We, of course, uh, in America, hear a lot about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and uh, John Adams. So let me ask you about some of the players on the British side. You've mentioned him already, Lord North, uh, Frederick uh, North. He was the uh, prime minister during almost all of the, of the uh, Revolutionary War. I guess he uh, was ousted uh, when Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown. Yes, well... Lord North was in many ways a very, very competent and uh, hard-working and diligent politician. Uh, I mean, he remained as Prime Minister, as you say, for, for 10 years, even though the war had begun to go disastrously badly. So he was clearly a competent man in some respects, and he certainly had the, the confidence of the King, and he had the confidence of a majority of the House of Commons, which was obviously what he needed in order to be Prime Minister. I mean, he's a very hard-working man, as I say. I mean, he, he gave, in his first four years in office, for example, between 1770 and 1774, he gave no fewer than 800 speeches in Parliament, which was a, quite a prodigious number. Uh, and he would rise very early in the morning, have breakfast meetings with his king. Uh, he was very diligent in terms of his correspondence. The difficulty was that he had two flaws in his character. One of those flaws in his character was that he was inclined to get into a panic uh, at moments of crisis. Uh, he was inclined to get into a, into a panic, especially in moments of crisis such as the American crisis of early 1774, of a kind that he'd never really un, uh, confronted before. And so he was inclined to make decisions that were sometimes too hasty. Hmm. Uh, and the other flaw he had was that he was simply too close to George III. Lord uh, North was intensely loyal to his sovereign. And under no circumstances would he, would he challenge or confront the, the, the sovereign's wishes. Now, George III hadn't really taken much of a role at all in decision-making about America prior to the Tea Party. But once the Tea Party had occurred, George III was insistent that law and order and the unity of the empire needed to be maintained. And, and Lord North's loyalty to the king meant that it was very hard indeed for him to pursue any, any different kind of a line and, and pursue a, a compromise with, uh, with resistance in America. And the king still had a great deal of influence then, right, as opposed, as opposed to the current day? Well, he didn't tend to get involved too much in the fine detail of decisions, I mean, particularly in financial matters. I mean, he had no role in financial matters at all. That was entirely the province of Parliament. Nor did he get involved in the detailed nitty-gritty of deciding exactly how many troops are sent to America and exactly how 
the, the mechanics, if you like, uh, should work, the mechanics of, of suppressing uh, what was clearly a re rebellion. The role of the king, really, was that he provided a kind of a backbone. Uh, once the parliament had decided that it intended to react to the Boston Tea Party by way of these acts of parliament and by way of, of effectively uh, the imposition of direct rule in Massachusetts, once they decided to do that, then the king kept them to it. He wouldn't allow them to flinch or deviate from the course they decided upon. So that was really his role. He was there. He saw himself very much as the kind of backbone of the Constitution. And he provided the, uh, as I say, the, uh, he was the, the man who wouldn't allow any form of compromise once the, the government had decided upon its course of action. Hmm. Uh, another uh, British uh, politician you profile is uh, Lord Dartmouth, William Legge, is it, who was the colonial secretary? I mean, he was the one with direct responsibility for the colonies? Yes, William Legge, the second Earl of Dartmouth. Now, he does play a big role in the book. Uh, he's been something of a neglected figure. I mean, historians have never really written very much about Lord Dartmouth because he's tended to be seen as somebody who is simply following orders from Lord North. But I've spent a lot of time on Lord Dartmouth, uh, working on his private papers. He left behind a, a wonderful collection of private papers which are preserved uh, in, in the county record office in a place called Stafford in England. Um, and what I was trying to do was really try to get inside the head of Lord Dartmouth and understand what made him tick. Now, he, he's an interesting character because he was rather a conflicted individual. You know, on the one hand, he was a devout evangelical Christian. He was a very pious man indeed. He was famous for it. Uh, he was a very kind, benevolent man. Uh, if a clergyman was down on his luck and needed help, then Lord Dartmouth would step in and help him financially and so on. And he was an early exponent, for example, of the abolition of the slave trade. Um, and he was unusual in all these respects because it was pretty uncommon at the time for members of the British aristocracy to be pious religious people. The problem with Lord Dartmouth was that that was one side of his character. The other side of his character was that he did have a kind of authoritarian streak. I mean, mm. he was a Calvinist, uh, which again was unusual at the time. He was a Calvinist, uh, and he honestly believed that the Americans were sinful. He believed that the, 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 the resistance in Massachusetts had been a manifestation of, of human sinfulness and depravity. So although he was prepared to be benevolent up to a point, uh, he was prepared to be tolerant up to a point, and he did indeed try to open negotiations with Benjamin Franklin towards a peace deal at the end of 1774. At the end of the day, the authoritarian streak in Lord Dartmouth won, won the day, and uh, it ended up being his responsibility to write the fatal dispatch in January 1775 that ordered uh, General Gage, the British commander in Boston, to, to send his men out to suppress the rebellion by force. Mm. Now, rather sadly, of course, I, Dartmouth was horrified by the consequences of what he had done. When the news arrived later that year of the, of the British casualties at Bunker Hill, Dartmouth was absolutely horrified. Um, he wrote about what he called the melancholy loss of so many officers and men. And it, it left him rather a broken man. Uh, from that moment forth, he more or less entirely withdrew from public life, and he gradually faded away out of politics. Hmm. He lived on for another 30 years or so. He lived on until 1806. But, but he, I don't think he ever really quite got over the, the uh, sense of remorse at, at, what, at what had occurred. And Nick Bunker's uh, with us, his book, An Empire on the Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America. I, I gather from your book that this remorse uh, that the Dartmouth uh, feels, and maybe you feel it too, or, I mean, that, that you, you seem to make uh, this, this point that um, you might say, well, you know, Britain and America, they, you know, the, they fought a war, but then they, now they're great allies and yada yada. But uh, in actual fact, a, a lot of Americans were killed, but a lot of British soldiers were killed. 
Well, you know, it's very hard to come up with a precise figure for how many casualties the British actually sustained, whether soldiers or sailors. Um, at the time, the British Army used to keep what they called muster rolls for each regiment, and they would record the number of men who were, who were dead or had deserted and so on. But they weren't normally collated together. And, of course, there were no war pensions, so there were no pensions records uh, or widows' pensions. So it's actually quite hard to come up with the figures. Now, fortunately, there is one document. There's only one document that survives in London, actually in the British Library, which is an official uh, return listing the number of casualties, purely for the Army, not the Navy. And it's not complete. But from that, I was able to come up with an estimate, which is the minimum number of dead on the British side. That's British Scotsmen and Irishmen, English Scotsmen and Irishmen, would have been at least 20,000. And that may be a lowball estimate. Mm. Now... When you bear in mind that the population of the British Isles, including Ireland at that time, was only about 11 million, or less than a sixth of what it is today, you multiply that 20,000 number by six to come up to the 120,000, if, if this were a modern war in, in the 21st century, you get a, then you start to see just how severe the loss of life was on the British side. Mm. And um, another uh, point that I take, take away from your uh, book is... Uh, when we write uh, about the revolution uh, here, or, you know, the, the, I, I think that maybe the general tone is, well, these rebels are fighting, you know, the gr- the greatest or one of the greatest military powers on earth. And that was probably true, but the British Army specifically, or uh, as opposed to the, the Navy, was, I get the impression was overextended. They didn't have that many uh, soldiers out and about. Well, that's correct. Now, American historians often say that the British Empire was the greatest military force in the world at the time, but it isn't true. Um, The reality was that the total strength of the British Army in 1775, before the war began worldwide, was about 36,000 men. Uh, 36,000 men actually, you know, on the books and available for, for, for duty. Now, that actually was quite a small number compared, for example, to the Russian army. And the Russian army may have been as many as 300,000 strong. Uh, The French in peacetime may have had as many as 150,000. So the British army was not actually particularly large. And a good 12,000 or a third of the British army were tied down in Ireland because the British believed they needed to maintain a substantial garrison in Ireland for obvious strategic reasons. Where the British were really strong, of course, was in the navy. Uh, where the Royal Navy was twice as strong as the French Navy at the time. And the British had this principle, which remained the British principle right down until the 20th century, which was that the Royal Navy should always be at least as strong as the navies of the two second largest powers uh, (coughs) combined. Mm -hmm. So the British Navy had to be at least as strong as the French and the Spanish Navy. Even so, though, there was still a problem there, which was that, of course, it was extremely expensive to keep the Navy at full strength during peacetime. So the British used to tend during peacetime to keep the Navy on on a kind of um, uh, skeleton strength. The ships would be sitting in harbour, their sails and guns would be taken out and kept on land, and they'd only have a skeleton crew. So if if they were going to fight a war, they had to have a very rapid process of mobilisation, which was very expensive. And in the early stages of the war in 1775, the British were slow to react, and they didn't put the, the army, they didn't really bump the army, the navy up to its war footing, until uh, arguably it was too late. By the 1770s, when uh, the American Revolution comes to be, um, Britain's empire in America has expanded because there was a previous uh, war. We call it, I think, the French and Indian War, and I believe it's the Seven Years' War in Europe. Yeah, that's right. We call it the Seven Years' War. Yeah. Yeah. But in any event, uh, Britain won. And it was, you know, taking over all of this territory that France had held. You, you begin the book uh, with the British holding a French fort in, uh, you know, Louisiana or uh, along the Mississippi, which is, um, you know, 
they, they ultimately they just abandon it because they've they've uh, they're so far away, uh, communications hard, and so forth. Yeah, that's right. Th- that episode at the beginning of the book it concerns a place called Fort Chartres, which was next to the Mississippi. It was about thirty forty miles south of St. Louis, and. The reason I start with that episode is because it kind of exemplifies or epitomizes a lot of the problems the British were facing. Um, they had acquired this vast amount of territory, as you say, at the end of the, at the, end of the Seven Years' War in 1763, but they weren't really quite sure what to do with it. And when they arrived at the fort, although the fort, this particular French fort, looked to be a very strong piece of military architecture, in fact, they discovered that it, it, it was located immediately next to the river, uh, essentially, it was being washed away by the by the tide, by the by the floods in the spring, and so eventually it collapsed. And they had to withdraw. And I use that as a kind of a symbol or a metaphor, if you like, for the overall problem that the British had, which was that they were trying to to rule an empire which, although it looked robust on the outside, in fact, its foundations were were precarious and weak, like those of the of the fort. Mm. There weren't, but but ultimately they did send a, a lot of soldiers to uh, the colonies, or, or, or didn't they? Well, they did, but they were never able to send the kind of numbers that really were required. I mean, I think the peak strength of the British Army in America at its strongest was around about 50,000. But, of course, they were continually having the difficulty of also having to defend the West Indies as well, where the wastage of men from disease, of course, was very high. And, of course, they were also having to fight a war effectively in in, in Europe and uh, sending troops to India too to defend themselves against the French. So there was a huge degree of, of, of overextension, if you like. Now, having said all of that... In spite of all that, there were things the British might have done early in the war to bring it a successful conclusion. Uh, if they had been prepared to, to use some very robust tactics very, very early on, or very, very early on. But they were reluctant to do that, I mean, partly because initially they didn't believe that they were going to end up fighting the whole of the American colonies. Initially, they thought they were simply going to fight a fairly limited war in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, which would probably be over fairly quickly. Uh, because that's what they thought. They, they took time. They took too long to, again, to mobilize the Navy fully and to send over the kind of strength of forces that would have been required. Mm. And um, let me ask you what, what uh, you thought or what what you conclude Britain's getting out of its empire. I, I was uh, interested to read. It seemed to me you were emphasizing the economics of it. I mean, they, they had empire so that they could uh, get the tea, you know, from China and bring it over uh, to England if possible, then maybe pawn it off on the American colonies. And But they were looking for financial gain. Well, yes. I mean, essentially, this is this, this absolutely crucial to their position. Now, in the 18th century, Britain was still, to a large extent, an agricultural country. It was an agricultural economy, but it was also an economy in which trade was 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 central i mean and the british parliament made no secret of that i mean they talked continually about the commercial prosperity of the british empire centered on london as being as being the heart of of, of british strength now the model from their point of view was relatively simple uh, they believed america was there to send tobacco and rice and, and, and indigo and so on back to to europe and also to serve as a as a market for manufactured goods exported from from the united kingdom and the government didn't seek to profit that directly by way of a huge tax take. They simply sought to profit from the taxes that would arise from the wealth generated in the United Kingdom as a result of all this trade. I mean, there's no question this, this was the basic British preconception about the way the empire should work. But what they didn't really work out was where Americans stood in this, in this situation. It didn't really leave a lot of scope for American aspirations. Now, in addition to that, of course, 
the British were still wedded to uh, what a traditional mercantilist model of, of, of how an empire should function, the kind of thinking that was dominant in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. They hadn't yet got a head around the idea that, that free trade might actually be ultimately the, the most beneficial way to run their economy and to run their empire. That was something which had yet to, uh, had yet to dawn upon them. I mean, now, of course, the thinker who was active at this time and who produced perhaps the most perceptive critique of the British Empire was Adam Smith uh, mm-hmm. in The Wealth of Nations. But The Wealth of Nations was not published until after the war began. And even then, it probably wasn't read thoroughly by anyone in high, in high places in England for about another five or ten years. Okay. Uh, we've been talking with Nick Bunker. We're, we're just about uh, out of time. He's author of the book, An Empire on the Edge, How Britain Came to Fight America. Uh, this follows his uh, highly successful uh, book, Making Haste from Babylon, A History of the Mayflower Pilgrims. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Nick Bunker, and I hope that you uh, continue to uh, look at uh, American history. I would indeed. Thank you very much.